0: Hey, if you've got a Bible, why don't you go to Luke chapter 4, because we're going to get there in a second. Um, we've um, loved the words of that last song we sang, because it's part of um, the series we're going to be looking at called Good News to the Poor. When John the Baptist asks Jesus if he's the one, Jesus sends messages back to him and says, you tell, you tell John this, the dead are raised, the lame walk, the blind receive sight, and good news is preached to the poor. So I thought that song was really really appropriate for where we're at. So if you've got a Bible, go to Luke chapter 4 now. We're going to have a look at the temptation of Jesus in a second. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one as a gift. We've got some on the welcome desk and we'd love you to take that and keep it and and read it because we believe that this book is our life. This book is truth and God speaks to us through it. I'm going to pray for us. We're going to look at this um, this story about the life of Jesus together. So let me pray. Father God, we thank you that your word is like a hammer that smashes rock to pieces. We thank you that your word is like a two-edged sword. It judges the thoughts and attitude of our hearts. We thank you that your word is like a seed that produces a bountiful crop of righteousness. And so I pray this morning as we sit humbly under your word that we would do that, that you would speak to us. We pray in particular for those who are wrestling with temptation, wrestling with spiritual oppression, wrestling with addiction, that the word this morning would be freeing, and that people would be able to walk in victory because of what Jesus has done. And we pray this in his strong name. Amen. Amen. We're going to be looking at the issue of temptation this morning. And as I was preparing this week and thinking, it kind of struck me that temptation is not a universal experience anymore because morality is not... Um, objective anymore. We live in a world that, um, that denies any sense of objective morality. And so if morality is objective, therefore temptation must, sorry, if morality is subjective, temptation must be subjective as well. And we, we're told that, um, you know, temptation is a construct of religion to force people to be moral and good. And so the way to deal with that is to actually just free yourself from it and we do that by saying, well, these things aren't bad. You don't, you don't have to worry about those things being bad. If they're not bad, then you're not tempted by them. You can do them. And, and, and so the problem with that is, is, how do I have this sense of feeling like I'm in control of myself? Do I have a sense of being able to say no to things? Or am I just a product of stimulus and response, stimulus and response, stimulus and response? Addict, uh, temptation at its ugliest evolves into addiction. And there are many people who have been completely broken and their lives ruined by addiction. But this morning I want to see I want to ask this question: is, is there hope? Is it possible for us to be freed from temptation? And if so, how do we, how do we get there? But before we get to the issue of temptation, I, I want to go back to a verse that we missed last week in John chapter three, in Luke chapter three, because I think it's a really important verse for our church, for where we're at and for our mission. Last week, we saw John the Baptist preaching baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. We saw people coming to him, being baptized in the Jordan River, and one of those people that came was Jesus. This is what it says in Luke chapter 3, verse 21. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. A couple of things about this verse you'll notice. Firstly, that the Father offers a validation of the Son. This is my Son. I love him. And that's going to be really important in a second. But the second thing, and the thing I want to draw your attention to, is that Jesus there is anointed by the Spirit. And in case you think that that's not the right word for what's happened there, Peter in Acts chapter 10, speaking of this event, says that Jesus was anointed by the Spirit. So, the Father speaks from heaven, the Son is baptized, the Spirit anoints the Son. The Trinity is at work. And um, if you follow the the trajectory of this, you go from Luke chapter 3, verse 21, and then Luke inserts this genealogy, this big family tree of, of the life of Jesus. But then you get to Luke chapter 4, verse 1, and it says. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. And so he's anointed by the Spirit, he's filled with the Spirit, he's led by the Spirit. That's a really important thing to pick up there. The Spirit of God is clearly at work in the ministry of Jesus, empowering him, because he's about to step out to a three-year preaching, teaching, healing ministry, and the Spirit equips and anoints him and empowers him for that. And the thing I think is important for us to realize is that if Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, needs the empowering presence of the Spirit in his ministry, then how much more us? How much more our church? That's why I think Luke um, records at the end of Luke, Luke chapter 24, the beginning of Acts, the, the two volumes that he wrote, he records that he tells, Jesus tells the disciples to wait They've just spent three years on a fast-track training program with Jesus. They've just seen him die on the cross. They've seen him rise again from the dead. He's just commissioned them to go to the ends of the earth with the good news. And then he says, wait. Why? What for? For power. He says, wait for power from on high. And in Acts chapter 2, the Spirit descends on the apostles. They speak in tongues. And Peter stands up. He preaches the good news publicly in Jerusalem. And 3,000 people get saved. Power. Friends, we need the power of the Spirit in our church, in our city. Our vision here at Anchor is to see our city transformed by making disciples of Jesus to the glory of God. Now, as you hear that, you think, it's too big. It's too lofty and it's purposefully lofty. We want it that way because we want it to foster a sense of dependence on God, that we're desperate for Him to work. And so that's what, that's what I want our church to be, a church that is desperate for the Spirit to work in our city. the church that is anointed and filled and led by the Spirit of God. But what does, that, what does that look like? What does it look like to be a church that is desperate and dependent on God's Spirit? I, I think two. there's probably lots, but two quick things. Firstly, it looks like praying. That's why our our prayer meetings are really important. That's why our 10 a.m. prayer meeting is important. That's why our our weekly prayer gatherings before we go to work and whatever we do is important. That's why prayer in our gospel communities is important because it, it all says, God, this is your work and we need you to do it. And secondly, I think it means that we take more risk, that we step out in faith and take a risk and share Jesus. And so this would be my suggestion to you. As you Walk through the doors of your office as you get into the lift, as you get off the bus or the train to uni or work or school, wherever it is you're going. At Whatever door you walk through before you get to your nine to five, pray. Holy Spirit, please fill me now for your time. I need you. I need your power. Please use me in this, in this place for your glory. And so I think that's really important that we see that Jesus is anointed, filled, and led by the Spirit. And as he does that, Jesus comes to what is his toughest challenge yet temptation in the desert. But, but as we get to this story in Jesus, um, what you'll notice, if you, if you read the Bible, you'll notice that there are a couple of stories in the background to this. And so, friends, this book is so good and it is so rich. And when you read something like Luke chapter 4 and you don't understand any of the richness of the Old Testament, This doesn't make as much sense as it could. And so as you're reading Luke chapter four and you're reading with the Old Testament in mind, it becomes deeper and richer because you should have in mind something like Genesis chapter three where Adam and Eve are in the garden and the the serpent comes, the devil comes and he he tempts Eve. You say to her, he, he points out the fruit to her and she notices that it's delightful to look at. And he lies to her and he says, Eve, look, if you eat this fruit, well, firstly, he says, Did God really say you can't eat of the fruit? You surely won't die. But if you do, your eyes will be opened, you'll be enlightened, you'll be like God, knowing the difference between good and evil. And so Eve eats and takes. And, and so that, that moment ought to be in the background for us. And I think that's why... Luke, when he talks about Jesus' big family tree at the end of chapter 3 there, he draws the family tree all the way back to Adam, from Joseph to Adam, because what he's trying to do is he's trying to identify Jesus with humanity. And he's saying this this person is coming. He is the new Adam. He is the new man. He's the man who's going to walk in righteousness and walk in perfection and, and not make the mistakes that the first Adam did. And so that that background ought to be in our head. The second story that forms the background for this is the 40 years that Israel wandered the desert because they didn't have faith, they didn't believe and enter the promised land. Moses sent a couple of spies to go check out the promised land, to go scope it out. And they go and they scope out the land for 40 days. And when they get back, they say, no, no, we're not going to go in and take it despite what God has called us to do. We're not going to do it because the people are really big, they're giants, and, and, and yet God has said to them, go, I will give this to you. And so they, they didn't believe. And so God says, because you didn't do this, for every day you spent scoping out the land, you will spend a year wandering the desert until this whole generation dies out. And so both Adam and Israel are representative and Jesus comes representing both of those two people, groups of people, and, and he does it right. Where they failed, he gets it right. He resists temptation. All of that to say, this is a really significant event in in Luke chapter 4. It's a significant event in salvation history, in the big story of, of God. It's a significant event in the life of Jesus. There is a lot that hangs on this. And so we're going to look at the three rounds between Satan and the devil. Round number one is this, Luke chapter 4, verse 1. It's what it says. And Jesus Full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. It's important to notice there that this temptation wasn't just three temptations at the end of 40 days, it continued. Every day, the devil is tempting Jesus for 40 days. Verse 3 The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, sorry, uh, verse, for 40 days he was being tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, if you are the Son of God. The devil calls into question Jesus' identity here. calls into question the Father's love and care for his Son. He says to him, If you really are God's Son, then Turn these stones into bread. Now, is it, I mean, can Jesus do that? Of course, he can turn stones into bread. He turns water into wine later on. The problem here is not so much about the food or Jesus' ability to do this stuff, it's more about his identity. It's more about, it's, it's more like this. It's the devil saying, if you're the Son of God, you shouldn't go hungry. God should be looking after you. And so don't trust him. Turn these stones, look after yourself. It's, it's a test of independence. And so the question is, will Jesus do what Israel did in the desert, grumble and moan, God, we've got no food, we've got no water, you've brought us out here to die, or will he trust himself to the Father? And so the devil swings and Jesus counterpunches with the Scriptures. Check out what he says. He quotes Deuteronomy verse 8. He says, Man does not live on bread alone. It's not about this food. It's about my Father. And The rest of the verse in Deuteronomy that Jesus doesn't quote says, man does not live on bread alone, but by the very words that come from the Father's mouth. And so the devil swings and Jesus ducks and counterpunches with Deuteronomy 8. That's round number one. Round number two, Luke chapter 4 verse 5. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me. And I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. The devil offers Jesus a shortcut here. See, he knows the end game. He knows how it finishes. He knows that it finishes with Jesus winning, with all people across the earth bowing their knee to worship Jesus the King. He knows that that. Um, Jesus will triumph over him at the cross, that, that he will glorify the Father. And so he says to Jesus, look, just take it all now. Just have it all if you will worship me. And the question is, well, is, is that really the, the devils to offer? I mean, does he really own all of the kingdoms from every era of time? And can he really offer them to Jesus? We know that the scriptures tell us that he is the ruler of the kingdom of the air. But the reality is that Jesus owns every corner of this world in every era of time ever. And so the devil's simply just offering him something that already belongs to him. But I think we, we need to realize that this temptation is real for Jesus. It is real for him because he knows what lies ahead. He knows the opposition to his ministry, he knows the, the suffering, the rejection, he knows the pain of the cross. He knows what it's like to have the Father turn his face away. This is a real temptation for Jesus to sidestep all of that and have glory without suffering. The devil's kind of playing Jesus, you know, the go straight to go, collect $200 card. You know, don't go past all the hotels and those two, is it Mayfair and the other one that's really expensive, just straight to go, collect $200. That's what he's saying. God... Here, sorry, Jesus. Here is tempted. Is tempted by this in a real significant way, and yet again he quotes scripture as his counterattack, as his defence. Again, it's a verse from Deuteronomy. Says, "You shall worship the Lord your God and serve Him only." It's the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before Me. The Lord your God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all of your strength. God always demands exclusive worship because he alone is worthy. There is none like him. He is the one who fashioned the world. He is the one who spoke existence into, into being. He is the one who has given life. He is the one who is in control of all things. And he demands worship and he is worthy of it. So Jesus says, I won't worship you. That would be idolatry. God says, worship him alone. So Satan swings. Jesus' ducks, swings back. Deuteronomy chapter 8. Round 3. The third temptation is this, chapter 4, verse 9. This is what it says. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil comes questioning his identity, questioning whether he really is the son of God. And and this temptation here is is the devil saying, are you sure? Are you really sure that you're the son of God, the the one who is loved? If so, prove it. Test him. Test him. The work of the devil is no different here to what it was way back in Genesis chapter 3 where he comes to Adam and Eve and he, he wants them to doubt the word of God. He wants him to doubt. Jesus has, 40 days earlier, heard the word of his father. This is my son whom I love. And and Satan comes and he whispers, are you sure? Prove it. Go ahead, prove that. Prove that you are the son. And this time, Satan is is cunning. Right? He, He turns Jesus' sword against himself and he begins to quote scripture at Jesus. Two verses from Psalm 91. It's interesting, isn't it, that the devil knows the Scriptures? seems that he almost even knows them off by heart. And he's picked a good passage. Because Psalm 91 is all about God's love and care for those who are his. And so he dangles this verse in front of Jesus' face. Now, whilst the verse might be a good reference, he has misapplied it woefully to Jesus. Because Jesus doesn't need to have this test, right? He just needs to trust the Word of God. He doesn't need a you know, bungee without a rope kind of test. Does God love me? If he does, I'll, he'll catch me. No, no, God doesn't need to be tested. He needs to be trusted. So Satan swings and, and Jesus counterattacks with a verse from Deuteronomy. You know, one of, one of Satan's favorite attacks against God's people is to tell you that God doesn't love you. He loves that one. He asks you the question, how can you be sure that God really loves you? or we'll say something like you know if god really loved you then he wouldn't let you experience this how can you know we need to do exactly what jesus does how can we know how can we know god loves us we know by this greater love has no one than this that he would lay down his life for his friends We know because of this, it says in Romans 5 that God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. And 1 John 4, it says, this is love, not that we loved God, but he loved us and gave his son as a propitiation for sin. How do we know? God has told us. Friends, God cannot be any clearer to you of his love towards you than sending his son Jesus to die on the cross and take your sin. It's clear. We need to trust the word of God. You know, in the end, what Satan ultimately wants here from Jesus is he wants to prevent him from suffering. Isn't that nice of him? Oh, got Jesus back, prevent him from suffering. But You know, the reason that he wants to prevent Jesus from suffering is because he knows what the suffering brings. He knows that Jesus' suffering at the cross will mean that, that Jesus will forgive people's sins. And the sting of sin is death. And Jesus conquers that by rising again. He knows that. He knows that at the cross, Jesus triumphs over the evil one and makes a mockery over him. He knows that when Jesus dies on the cross and rises again, he universally calls all people to worship him. And so the devil comes to Jesus and says, Look, rule the world now without the cross. Do it without the cross. You know the response... um, of the disciples to Jesus when he says to them, I'm about to go to Jerusalem and at the hands of evil, wicked men, I will be crucified. And what, what, what does Peter say? Never, Lord. You will never go like that. And Jesus turns around and says, get behind me, Satan. It's pretty, pretty intense, right? But it is always the work of the evil one that tries to create a crossless Christ, a savior without the suffering, glory without suffering. And so Jesus knows the path that he must walk. He knows what lies ahead. And so, in the power of the Spirit and with the Word of God, he resists. And verse 13 says this And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. And we see the devil coming back again and again throughout the account of Luke, opposing Jesus all the way to the cross. And so the devil swings, and Jesus ducks and counterpunches with Scripture. And in the power of the Spirit, he resists. What I want to do now is shift gears a little bit and and pull back from those and look at those three temptations and think about how Jesus has resisted that. Because what I I think is that the devil's work is not unique. It's not new. He's he's not very inventive. He uses the same tactics time and time again. And the way that Jesus has resisted this temptation is is a model for us to resist the temptation of the devil. And so I want to look at seven tactics of the enemy and how we can stand firm against them. Tactic number one is this. He goes after us when we're weak. You notice there in verse 2 it says that Jesus has fasted for 40 days. He hasn't eaten and he's hungry. That's an understatement. Six weeks of no eating and he's hungry. He's weak. and The devil often goes after you when you are weak when you're tired, when you're emotional, when you, you're stressed out. And so we need to be aware. We need to be aware of the physiological factors of our body. Like God has created us and designed us in a certain way. And when we push against God's good design and stress ourselves out and, and don't eat properly and don't exercise, we make ourselves vulnerable and weak. And the devil sees that and he, he tries to go in. And so we need to be aware of those physiological factors. Secondly, he questions your identity. You notice twice there, he, he comes to Jesus. He says, if you are the Son of God, then do this. He loves to do that one. And if he can get you to doubt your identity, then he's won half the battle already. Are you really a Christian? Are you really one of God's children? You know, God only loves those who... But you know the difference between the work of the devil and the work of the Spirit is the devil will always try and get you to question your identity, whereas the Spirit of God always confirms your identity. What does Romans chapter 8, verse 3 says? It's not on the screen, but it says that you have received a spirit of adoption, and by him we cry, Abba, Father, and the Holy Spirit confirms with your spirit that you are children of God. That's the work of the Spirit, to confirm your identity, and the devil wants to question that. And so as he does that, we need to remember who we are. Remember that you're a child of God, that you've been adopted, that you're in his family, that you're a co-heir with Christ, that you've been redeemed, that you've been justified, that you've been bought, that you've been purchased. That you are his. Third, Satan lies to you. You notice he lies to Jesus. He says, all of this is mine, and I will give it to you if you worship me. The Bible describes Satan as a liar and a murderer. He's like a lion that is prowling around looking to devour his prey. That's why Ephesians 6 says, if we want to take a stand and stand firm, we need to take the sword of the Spirit, which is what? The word of the Lord. The word of the Lord, it is truth. Satan lies, but the Spirit guides you into truth. Fourth, Satan offers you what is already yours if you would worship him. You notice that what he says to Jesus, if you worship me, I'll give you all this even though you own it already anyway. Do you know that if you follow Jesus, that you're a co-heir with Christ? And that means that you are filthy rich. Filthy rich. You own everything because you're a co-heir with Christ and Jesus owns the world and the universe and everything. So that means that every time Satan offers you something, it's a fake. It's an imitation and it will leave you disappointed and dissatisfied. What it means is that every time we cave into temptation, we've actually sold ourselves short. That's what it is. We've sold ourselves short. We haven't settled for something better. We've settled for something less. No matter what the temptation is and how good it feels, what God has already offered you in Jesus is better by far. And so he comes and he tries to offer you what's already yours. And number five. He loves to put people in vulnerable positions. You notice what he does to Jesus? He puts temptation right in his face. Shows Jesus all of the kingdoms of the world at a moment of time. Puts him up on the highest point of the, of the tabernacle. Satan loves to put people in vulnerable positions. And so we need to ask ourselves the question, am I where I'm supposed to be? Am I supposed to be here? You remember in 2 Samuel, you might not remember, but I'll tell you anyway, 2 Samuel chapter 11, it starts off like this. In the springtime, when kings go off to battle, King David is standing on the roof of his palace, perving on a young girl called Bathsheba, who eventually he calls her into his room and sleeps with her and commits adultery. Satan loves to go after us when we're in positions of vulnerability. And so we need to be aware of that. I think it was Martin Luther. I tried to research where this quote came from. And I think it's Martin Luther who said, if your head is made of butter, don't go near the fire. It will melt. Stay away. Keep keep away from vulnerable positions. So we need to ask ourselves the question, am I where I'm supposed to be? Am I supposed to be here? Number six, Satan will use your tactics against you. You notice that he turned Jesus' sword against him. He begins to quote scripture at Jesus and he misapplies it. And and that's why, friends, we need to know this book well. We need to read this book like this book is our life. It is truth. That's why for leadership in God's church, one of the requirements is that they're able to correctly handle this book because often God will send a sheep, a wolf in sheep's clothing, to devour the flock, destroy God's people. And so we need to know this book. Psalm 119, the psalmist says, Lord, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. I know this. And so we quote scripture to the devil. And at the same time, we remind ourselves of truth and the Spirit reminds us of that. He might know the scriptures, but he will not lead you into truth. He will always lead you into destruction. But the Spirit of God leads us into truth. And lastly, he wants wants you to believe that being tempted is sin. He wants you to think that temptation is sin. And if he gets you to believe that, he's won. But you know, it's not the truth because Jesus was tempted and yet is without sin. There's a difference between temptation and sin. And so those are the, the tactics of the enemy. Those are the ways that we can defend ourselves in The power of the Spirit by the Word of God. Friends, this morning my question for you is, are you in the wilderness? Do Do you find yourself in the desert of temptation? I don't know what your specific temptation is, what your struggle is. But I bet for the most part the strategy has been, make war on sin, try harder, do better, get better at not doing that. And that might be true. There is effort in putting sin to death in our lives. But you know what? It's not the place to start. The place to start is with a gospel-formed identity. Who am I in Christ? And so I, we, we did this um, helpful training thing a while ago um, where you ask a bunch of questions. Who is God? Well, God is Father. What has God done? He sent Jesus to be my sacrifice, to die in my place, and to adopt me. Well, who am I? I'm his child. Well, how, how do I act? Oh, I go off and look at porn. What? No, I, I live in accordance with who I am in Christ. And so our, our, our battle really begins with our identity. And once we've figured that bit out, we can we can figure the rest of the stuff out around it but we have to start with a gospel shaped identity because when you spend all of your time focusing on your sin you're looking at your sin and not at Jesus and so we turn our face to Jesus and look at him. Jonathan Edwards says this he says we always act in according we always act in accordance with the strongest inclination we have at the moment of choice. What he's saying is we always choose to do What we want to do when we're faced with a choice. We always choose what we want. And so what that means is that the solution to resisting temptation is to want something more than that temptation. So what was it for Jesus? He's faced with all of this temptation and he doesn't cave because he wants the Father's glory. He wants to die for the sins of the world. He wants to rescue and redeem people. He wants to please his Father. There's something more important to Jesus than caving to this sin. That's why I think um, C.S. Lewis helpfully says to us that it's not that our desires are too strong. In fact, they're actually too weak. Our desires are too weak. We need to strengthen and deepen our desires for, for the right things, for eternal things, for Jesus. And so as we engage in this battle, the first step onto the battlefield is the question of identity. Identity. And will I allow the gospel to shape and form my identity? Will I fix my eyes on Jesus? But you know, that's not to say that sin will never be a struggle and and you'll never be tempted by anything. Because when you resolve to live a life sold out for Jesus, opposition will come. When you say, Father, please fill me with your spirit and send me out on mission, opposition will come. And we know that. And some of you guys who have been part of our launch team and been a part of this thing from the beginning have known and seen and felt some of the opposition we had to this thing. That's why Paul says our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and powers and principalities of this dark age. And so if you're feeling at the moment under attack spiritually, then can I encourage you to make the most of the prayer time after the service as as we respond and worship I think as Brad and myself will be out there, we would love to pray for you if you're feeling that in any way. But let me, as I close, just offer you some hope. I don't know what your struggle is. I don't know what your particular temptation is or temptations are, but I want to offer you the hope that comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. This is what it says. No temptation has overcome you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. You know what that means? There's hope. There's hope. No matter what you face, no matter how bad it is, there is a way out. You know what that verse also means? It also means that we can't claim to be the victim anymore. We can't claim, I couldn't help it. It wasn't my choice. There There was nothing I could do about it. Because With every temptation, every single one of them, Jesus also provides an escape route. And that that is hope, right? As we engage in this battle, in the power of the Spirit with the Word of God, and we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, there is an escape route. Let me just say quickly to those of you who are here this morning, and and I don't know if there anyone is here in this position, but to those of you who have battled with temptation to the point of it being an addiction, I don't want to suggest that memorize seven things and, and it's a quick fix for your problems. right? I, I don't want to suggest that that's the case. I know that there may be years and years of, of unhelpful thinking, of neural pathways that have been formed, of, of habitual behavior that is cemented in place. And so it might be the case for you that in order to resist temptation, you need intense help and qualified help. But here's the deal. I don't think the foundation is any different. I think the foundation is your identity in Jesus. We all need to have this gospel-shaped identity of who we are in Christ. You know, the the problem that I've felt with temptation this week, the fact that it's not universal because of subjective morality and subjective temptation, the problem with that is, is that the Bible has a very different opinion. See, our world would love to reduce temptation to just Doritos and Magnums. That's it. The Bible has a much deeper picture. This is what it says in James chapter 1, verse 14. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire when it is conceived gives birth to sin, and sin when it is fully grown gives, brings forth death. Temptation, sin, death. Now that's, that's bleak. Right? But the good news of Jesus is that He has taken death away, and so there might be temptation, and there might be sin, but Jesus has died for the, the punishment, the penalty that that sin deserved. He has taken it away. And He's freed us from that. Every temptation we face, every sin that we commit, Jesus comes to the cross and says, "I will take that on myself. I will pay for that." On your behalf, so friends, the good news of the gospel is that we're freed from the presence, from the power, and the the penalty of sin. And one day, we will be freed completely from the presence of sin as Jesus returns and calls us to be His. Friends, we're going to spend some time responding in worship. We're going to remember what Jesus has done, resisting temptation so that He could be that perfect sacrifice to die in our place. And we're going to do that by taking two symbols, bread and grape juice. These symbols represent the body and the blood of Jesus that was broken and spilt for our forgiveness. And so during this time of worship and, and these songs, I would encourage you to take some time to reflect. Repent of sin. If there is sin that you need to repent of, confess it. Ask for the Spirit's strength. Remind yourself of Scripture. Do business with God. And as you are, feel ready and feel led, come forward and dip the grape, dip the bread into the grape juice and remember what Jesus has done. During this time of response, as I mentioned earlier, Brad and I will be out in the foyer. There, and we would love to pray for anyone. Doesn't you? Don't have to be facing temptation. You you could have any need, no matter how big or small. We would love to pray for you and with you this morning. So, friends, we're gonna we're gonna pray. We're gonna respond. We're gonna praise our God. We're gonna sing. I'm gonna invite the band to come up now, and I'm gonna pray for us. So let's respond to our Savior Jesus. And I'm going to pray in the words of the Lord's Prayer this morning. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive those who sin against us. And Father God, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us From the evil one. We thank you for Jesus that he was able to walk in victory over sin by the power of the Spirit with the Word of God. And so I pray for everyone in this room who is struggling with temptation, wrestling with sin, trying to beat addiction in their life. And I pray that by the power of the Spirit and the Word of God, you would help them to say no to sin and yes to Jesus. We love you, Lord, and we rejoice now in what you've done for us in Jesus' name, amen.